0: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and our guest on The Economist Asks this week is Stockard Channing. For me, it's like this awful thing of saying, oh, I thought I was doing it right,
1: and I did it wrong. And as somebody I recently did it with, it was three grown girls in their 20s, is that you, all you can do is the best you can, and at the same time, you have to be your own person.
0: The Bechdel Test was designed in 1985 to assess the portrayal of women in popular culture. If a film has two female characters who talk to each other about something that isn't a man, guess what? It passes the test. And the films that do might surprise you. Am I the only one who finds all of this more than a little disturbing? Aren't you Bobby Markowitz? I love your book. What was it called? It was about your relationship with your mother. I love you, but please die. Sheen.
1: The Sheen. Yeah. Where you from? Lawrence. Oh yeah, Lawrence, out on the island. It's nice.
0: I'm from Miami. You ever been there? Like Goodfellas okay, and the like Stepford died. Wives there. But unsurprisingly, a majority of films fall very short, and more than 30 years on from Bestel, women remain underrepresented on the screen. In 2016, less than a third of speaking characters in the highest-grossing films were women. The proportion has hardly moved in a decade. So what has changed for women actors overall? Today, we ask the woman who gave us this screen rebel. There are worse things I could do than go with a boy or two. Stockard Channing is someone whose work has constantly challenged expectations of how women should behave on stage and screen. From that rebellious Rizzo in the 1978 (laughs) hit Grease.
1: Well, here we are
0: again. Yeah, but this time we're seniors. And we're gonna rule the school. (laughs) 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 To a tough First Lady, Abigail Bartlett, in the West Wing. Why doesn't my agenda
1: get anywhere in these negotiations? Well, can I ask you, ma'am? Why do you think? Because you're a political snob who doesn't think the First Lady belongs on the starboard side of the building.
0: Among dozens of nominations, including one for the Best Actress Oscar for her role in Six Degrees of Separation, her work has garnered Emmys, two Screen Actors Guild Awards, and a Tony Award. She's now back on stage in London in a new play, Apologia. We're sitting here on stage at the Trafalgar Studios and the setting is the home, the country home of your character, Kristen. It's got a very 70s vibe about it, everything from the hanging plants and lots of ecologically aware products about, so I'm intrigued. Tell me about the role and who is Kristen when she's at home here?
1: Kristen Miller is a very eminent art historian. She's an American who left the States when she was 22. She of a free spirit, rebellious at that time. It would be sort of the late 60s, 70s. The play takes place in 2009. And when she was uh, in a marriage to a British gentleman, she had two boys and they got divorced. And she uh, took them to Florence and the father came and abducted them and sort of put her feet to the fire and said, you know, if you want to uh, keep at what you're doing, you're you're not going to be living with me and I have the boys. And so that's the backstory of the family relationship. And she uh, has these two boys who are now around 40-ish. They are coming to celebrate her birthday. And so it takes place in that 18 hours in a country house outside of London.
0: And it's apologia. It's not an apology, as she says, at one point quite... Curtly, with a great snappy delivery, and I think that reflects the awkward line that we tread when we justify our past choices in the sense of explaining why our lives have taken the course we have, but also then to other people who feel hurt by it, and that's the line that she's treading here, isn't it?
1: She is unaware that they have had this huge reaction in their view of life that she, quote, never came back for them or whatever, which... I personally find sort of curious, because she wanted to say, get over it, because she was, you know, she didn't beat them around the head and shoulders, but she was an independent woman. And she is a difficult woman. She's very witty. She's very smart. But it emerges in the course of the play that this action she was forced to take, the consequences have had have been very large in her son's minds. For me, it's like an awful thing of saying, oh, I thought I was doing it right, and I did it wrong. And as uh, somebody I recently did it with, it was three grown girls in their 20s, that that all you can do is the best you can, and at the same time, you have to be your own person. That is true whether you're a man or a woman, but it uh, also probably none of us get it right. And if you get it too right, then you can't kick them out of the nest, I suppose, because they don't want to leave. But it's a very curious and complex family situation and seems to
0: resonate. What's your own memory of the events that are referenced in the play? We hear a lot about Vietnam, not surprisingly for a play that is based in memories of 1968. Also Grosvenor Square, the great protest in London, that seems to be almost you know, her cultural reference, the, the things that she hangs on to, the handrail of her life, lies so far back. Right. But is there any of this that, that resonates from you where you think, oh, yes, a I, I dim recollection of this, and how did you experience 1968 and its aftermath, that more radical time? In my
1: life, the 60s was certainly this especially the anti-Vietnam War and the leftist things and the weathermen and all that incredible, you know, eruption of stuff that happened all over the world, and certainly in the United States, but, I mean, there is a part of what the emerging feminism was, a dissatisfaction with the structures of left-wing politics, that women were in some cases subjugated, and they were put in the same patriarchal situations that they would ultimately be rebelling against, but in a, a highly politicized environment, which, to some people's frustration, only perpetuated a certain kind of subjugation that they ultimately rebelled against.
0: And how did you find that as you started out acting? I think you started acting at, at Harvard. I was
1: at Harvard. I was an undergraduate. It was in the air. It was a part you know, of the plays that we put on. It was all of that stuff, and that, and, and as an undergraduate who was in, really involved in theatre more than anything else, much more so than I was in my academic work, I'm afraid, you know, it was filtered through that kind of thing, and it was the rock musical, it was the protest musicals, all that sort of business, and the people that were creating that stuff, where I was in Cambridge, you know, were definitely against the war, this, that, and the other, not to mention the fact that they were, you know, young men I knew who died in the war, young men I knew personally, close friends that were, crippled emotionally in the world all of that was very much in the forefront i think when you get into the 70s i mean this is a terribly broad generalization things do go a little sort of sour and crazy and the drug stuff so i sort of rode through it i marched for mcgovern but i can't say that i was as my life was completely
0: absorbed in politics i just had opinion subverting female stereotypes does seem to have been a bit of a a thing for you whether it was vengeful but powerful Miriam in The Girl Most Likely To* or Judy Shepard in the, the Matthew Shepherd story a lot of television viewers will know you as Abigail Bartlett in The West Wing. Have you sought out roles that whether they were overall positive or negative had some female strength at the core of them?
1: I haven't sought out really anything I mean people either come and say would you like to do this the pattern, I guess, emerges when you've been around as long as I have. And I'm glad it's this pattern and not another pattern. And that's fine with me. I mean, I think the personalities of these characters are tremendously different. If you take some of that the fictional thing of Miriam and The Girl Most Likely to Judy Shepard, who was a woman who was made to be heartbroken and politicized in a certain sense with the horrible death and murder of her gay son very different kinds of personality or style they are in fact pretty different from each other
0: we'll return to to the play in in just a moment but i wanted to to just trace some of that journey and it's probably the question you'll get asked most often but you you, do you live with both the glory and the shadow of rizzo in in greece (laughs)
1: Well, I've sort of had a complex relationship with her, I'll say. You know, you know, we forget how long ago it was. I mean, except I don't forget because I step out of a stage door and there's this photograph thrust into my face. And you sort of come back and stare in the mirror and go, oh, God, look what happened there. So it's a very long, ongoing relationship, which only exists because of technology, going from the DVDs and this and that and the other, and this, people can stream it on their phones, for God's sake. So I have to say, I don't stream it on my phone. I don't do that. I've seen the movie maybe twice, maybe three times. I think
0: you've seen it a lot less than I've seen it. I'm sure, especially if you have children. Well, it's interesting how we measure out our lives, and this is a sign, and this is why people keep coming back to it when you're thinking, I wish they'd move on, is for me, that was, I remember being taken to see it and my friends having to sort of tell my mother it wasn't quite about what it was about because it was seen as quite risky. It's very
1: vulgar. It is. Last time I had to see it, I was sort of stunned. I said, wow, a lot of this is a pretty bad taste, good for it. I was kind of happy about that because uh, I, I'm very touched by the fact that that young woman, who I guess is 17 or 18, thank God, didn't get pregnant. That's all I can think mm-hmm. of. you Rizzo. Rizzo, yes. Your, your, your because, character. You know, I mean, there wouldn't have been a pretty picture if she had.
0: I gather you had to fight to have her torch song There Are Worst Things I yeah. Could Do incorporated in the final film at all.
1: It's very curious... If you'll notice, the song is very simple. It's hardly any time is taken to shoot it. It's almost one shot and a couple of close-ups. And so we did it very briefly, and it was sort of like, oh, all right, we'll, we'll keep that in mind. We'll put it at the back burner.
0: And were the qualms girl. about
1: the morality of the song? No, no, because that was already in the, in the movie. There was the sex scenes were in the movie, you know, in the back seat of the car. And this, that, and the other, you know, it was all in there still and and kept in but I think that her individual personality and adolescent pride and almost contrariness of of not wanting to show her emotions on her sleeve you know that that she was not as tough as she was pretending to be and I think that really moved me as Mm. for a young woman.
0: And it's so fascinating you watch now because you were marginally older than some in in the (laughs) cast you think? (laughs)
1: Well, I suppose when you're an eight or nine-year-old watching it, you're not all grown-ups look alike. I have no no idea. But I got away with it, so there you go.
0: Tell us a bit about politics and women. And you can guess that I'm going to cite your role as Abigail Bartlett, the long-suffering wife. In the long-running, the West Wing. uh, One thing that Aaron Sorkin said to me when I interviewed him about the West Wing a few years ago, was that he had really sought to capture the influence of women, whether it was uh, through Alice and Jenny as the press right. secretary, but also through the power of the First Lady, which is, is your role. Do you think that's a realistic view of the way that the job of First Lady functions? Well,
1: Marty, Sheen and I, we never met each other, actually, in life. The first day of filming, literally, and we were in some white tie event, I remember we were standing at the top of a very long staircase. It was called the State Dinner, and there was dignitaries around. us, about 150 extras all in evening gowns, and they threw me in a, on set in this ill-fitting gown, and I said, oh, hi, hi, I'm Stockard, nice to meet you. And the music started. We had to descend down the stairs. I said, so how many do we have children? He said, oh, yes, we have an eight-year-old grandchild. I went, grandchild? <laughs> Which, <laughs> luckily, the mics weren't on. So when we had to go back for the second time, I said, Wait a minute! What else is going on? I don't know about it. because I had no idea. So I went to Aaron. I said, "Who is she? What's the nature of the past?" He said, "I don't work that way. I don't work that way." She is who he is. So, that's how Aaron works, and that's the acorn, that's the seed, and over time he added on to her. But that was the only thing he decided to do and I think he did see that chemistry existed between Marty and myself. And then afterward like, he can analyze analyze it sort of after the fact. But it really was just the dramatist way of trying to figure out how she should be in the in the West Wing.
0: The Western was produced during the Clinton years, and that idea of the First Lady as powerful at one remove, if you like. This is the way it was when Hillary Clinton yeah. was doing the, the backup role. Michelle Obama also did a prominent role, but backing up uh, Barack Obama. It isn't exactly what Christian would have been satisfied with in terms of women in politics, is it?
1: I don't know. I think she would have been very happy about Michelle Obama. Who wouldn't be? And in terms of Abigail Bartlett, I think... She was neither of the two because she had an aversion to politics, but she did her job. But she very much knew that she had a job to do, and she did it. In the end, I think she was much more like Michelle Obama in terms of of fulfilling the job that she was given to do.
0: But if you had to play a part from the drama that is the Trump White House, would you go for Melania or Ivanka?
1: I think I just would choose neither. I think just like, just like I have done, I'd get in a plane. I think I would bail. Given an option, I would drop out.
0: But you don't think this is a, a new and, however, regrettable for many liberals in America? It's a dramatic situation.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, like everybody else, am curious how it will turn out in the long run and how our democracy will be affected by this uh, casting.
0: And how much do you see, because so many people will come to you and say, we admire your portrayal of strong female roles and some will also see that as left liberal politics and some will just think i really admire a strong woman on on this stage i bet you have republican fans as well as democrat ones how much do you see yourself as carrying values or being in that debate about the casting of women the portrayal of women
1: i find that it would be presumptuous for me to think about a general trend or not lack of trend because it's nothing i much can do about it. i basically am doing my job as a Comes along. I can't think of the overall thing. Unfortunately, I think that is a problem. Really, of people twenty years younger than or more of my, than myself, and I think it must be very difficult for a young woman to come into be an actor at this point. You have commented on
0: roles for interesting roles, you know, meaty, substantial roles for for women as as the years Uh, will buy and some people you you probably know some of them like Patricia Arquette and Gina Davis have actually put themselves into a, a kind of foundation I think an institute to help address the balance or at least campaign to address the balance. Are you winning?
1: Well the bottom line people have to write the stories and they have to get the deals made. You can campaign all you like but until somebody makes a lot of money it's kind of a theoretical battle if but that will. then challenges the studios, that challenges yeah. people. It put challenges the p- way of the world. That's it. But, you know, you have creative elements in a younger generation now that are kicking butt. And I mean, women out there, you know, whether it's Orange is the New Black, there's a host of them. So that's where the, the power is the power. And you can chat about it all you want, but it's basically that's where it comes from.
0: Let's finish on Apologia, which, which we should be, probably before you uh, go and get ready for tonight's performance. It's just not that far away. There's a, a sense, and we're not going to give away the end. That would be a terrible thing to do for our listeners on either side of the Atlantic. But sometimes, picking the second half uh, when things get darker, a sense that she's a bit. Defeated, a bit brought down by events and by recognitions. That's also what drives the very good drama here. At one point, I did want to shake those those two boys. In fact, played by (laughs) by one actor uh, who works very hard, I think for for his money. Joseph Milson, who plays the uh, the two very different boys. There's a little bit of a sort of possibly a millennial sense, well, you know, you did this terrible thing yes. to me, mommy. Didn't you want to give them a shake? <laughs> of course,
1: I do. I totally agree with you. Like, get over it, for <laughs> one thing. Because I said earlier, she didn't beat them around the head and shoulders. I mean, she did take them to Florence. She did. They did visit her, this, that, and the other. But that's my and her point of view. I'm sort of fascinated sometimes I would, but sometimes i don't really want to know what's going on in the minds of people in the audience you know cuz a lot of people are sort of crying at the end and i don't know who the tears are for necessarily and i don't want to know but until the time comes that they reach a sort of point in their life and have to look backwards on their own lives then they may respond to the play a little
0: differently. There's a warning in here, which is if you're tempted to write a memoir, think very carefully. The people, your most ferocious critics will be your family. Well, yes, Do- it's
1: actually a really true thing because you can't really, it's very hard to win in those situations. I mean, obviously, the in this particular case, this deep-seated anger is in these two men for their own particular reasons. I mean, because the relationship of mothers and sons, fathers, as I said earlier, is always very complicated and maybe it's you know a part of nature's way of having them sort of move along it's sort of like i have never had a full-term pregnancy but i gather the last few months of pregnancy are so uncomfortable it is nature's way of saying get this damn thing out of me uh which is what i've heard from people who have children so that's maybe it's the same it's that great wheel of life put you off writing a memoir uh, i've been asked and i've refused Talk to us instead. Thank you very much, Stockard Channing.
0: Thank you very much. That's all from The Economist Asks today. If you've got any thoughts about what you heard from Stockard Channing in conversation with me about women on stage and screen, well, do get in touch as usual. Radio at economist.com or on Economist Radio on Twitter. In London, this is The Economist. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert Styles.